we talk a lot about communication at Mighty Parenting. Our experts, myself, the communications, email series that we share with you. And one of the keys to communicating well with our teens is to not be stressed. Because when we're stressed, we knee jerk, we jump in, we say things that we don't mean to say. And as I'm talking to parents, you guys are telling me that you don't have time for stress relief. So I've created a complimentary lesson for you that requires no time. Yes, you will have to listen to the audio, so it's going to take you a few minutes to do that. But the strategies I share with you don't require you to spend any more time on them. So pop over to sandyfowler.com forward slash no time and learn how you can start relieving your stress and feeling better today. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a podcast with real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults. Welcome to Mighty Parenting, a community where we help you raise teens and parent 20-somethings so they can become happy, successful, and emotionally healthy adults. I'm Sandy Fowler. I'm a stress relief coach for women and especially for moms, and I host the Mighty Parenting podcast. And a quick reminder to pop on over to mightyparenting.com and grab the free email series that I have for you, giving you tips on how to talk to your teens so you can build connection. Our, our kids are often unfocused or stressed or things just don't seem to be sticking in their brains or maybe they're having trouble balancing school and home and their other activities. And as parents, it's really easy to fall back on thinking that they don't care or they're being lazy. But what if they aren't? What if they just need to understand better how their own brain works and how to get it to do what they want it to do? And what if we as parents just need that understanding too, instead of thunking our heads and going, why are they doing that? Or why won't they do that? And that's what Malin Gudestam is here to discuss with us today. She is cracking the code on teenage brain and showing us tips and tricks and insights, basically just ways to help our teens do better all day long. Malin, welcome to Mighty Parenting. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I appreciate you taking the time to be here. I find your work very interesting. And one of the things that I loved was your positive take. When I looked at your book, the first thing that really stuck in my head was how you talk about teenage brains being amazing. So what is it that is so amazing about our kids' brains at this point in their life? Well, there's actually so much going on in their brains. And I mean, we look at teens and we think there must be something going on. But if you actually look inside their brains, uh, there's so much development going on. And the, it's different. The teen brain is different from the child brain and it's different from the parent brain. We used to think that teens brain were just tiny adult brains, but there are specific things going on. And some of the things that actually explain what we see on the outside. And that can be helpful both for parents and for the teens themselves. So one thing that's happening is all through childhood uh, and up to the teenage years, there's something, uh, there are lots of connections. There's an overproduction of connections between neurons, all those millions of neurons that we have in there. 
Uh, and when we reach the teen years, uh, there's a process called pruning that starts. And it starts to eliminate the connections that are unused and instead strengthens the connections that are used. Uh, so after the teenage years, when we enter adult life, we have a more specialized brain. So during this process, um, there's more going on. Uh, the reward system in the brain changes. The dopamine system, the chemical that's involved in the feelings of pleasure and curiosity and motivation, that changes. The teen brain uh, is very interested and is seeking out rewards in a way that it doesn't do as a child and it doesn't do as an adult either. Uh, so since the dopamine system changes, uh, they experience the positive emotions more intense than we do in adult life. So the first kiss, is the emotion is more intense than a kiss that we have in adult life. And something that teens love when I tell them is like, if you love chocolate, you're going to feel the positive emotion even more intense now than you will do as an adult. So enjoy it now. Uh, okay, that, there are a couple things in there, but that idea alone that they are experiencing things more intensely explains so much about what we see. And in going to that positive side first, they got so passionate and uh, they, uh, they get passionate around things that are important to them or injustices that they see. And I think a lot of times as adults, we just look at them and we go, you know, tone it down. It's not that big of a deal. But what I'm hearing from you is that physiologically, it really is a much bigger deal for them than it is to us. It is a bigger deal. And it's, all, it's not only about physical rewards, we're talking social rewards. So that's also more rewarding for them. The social, the attention from peers and friends and also positive attention that they get from parents and teachers. That's very important in this developmental stage that they're in. Uh, and I would say, that's why I say amazing team brains because now we've reached, reached a point in society where we need to solve very, very complex problems. And we can't really solve them in a way that we're used to, like you know, analytically and logically. We need the kind of insights, we need creativity, we need this social passion that they own. So I think that we should use teens much more in, in problem solving. Uh, and adding them to what we actually do in society because they can bring so much to the table. That's why they're amazing. And that is so counter to what many adults think. It's, oh, you're a teen, you don't know anything, you don't have enough experience. How could you possibly contribute to this? And I hear you telling us the opposite, that they are really an amazing resource for us to tap for solving serious problems. I would say so. Uh, and I've been teaching in upper secondary, which would be senior high school. And these students that I've had, they've developed projects, they've gone out into society, they've changed things, they connected with people, they contacted, and they've done all these things because of the passion that they want to, to change and curiosity in learning new things. But we have to of course, facilitate and create um, environments where they can do this. 
Well, that was another piece of what struck me in your opening comments is you talked about the neural connections mm -hmm. and how the teen years are a time where unused connections are getting pruned and the ones they use are getting strengthened. The thought that I had around that was, oh my goodness, so how much more important is it then that we feed this fuel of their passions and we encourage them to explore and create and test and try different things? It's very important, I'd say. I don't think that scientists know now that they can say that it's better to do these things and not those things. I think more of them would say, have a broad education, try different things, fail, and have the tools so you know how to recover and get up again and get restarted, because these are all the things that will be embedded and that can be used later on. So trying new things, definitely. And also to learn how to fail and get back up, the learning process that we need um, to grow. That's a conversation that we have often on this show. I mean, sometimes it's a full conversation. Sometimes it's a passing comment or a small piece of a show. And we hear over and over and over that our kids need to become resilient. They need to fail and learn how to get back up, how to move forward. And yet as a culture, at least here in the U.S., we pad their world and we protect them and we stop that from happening. And again, I'm going back to this idea of, oh my goodness, these neural connections, we can be really, they can be strengthening the ones that make them more resilient, that help them move forward, which personally gives them more emotional strength, better mental wellness. Also, again, better opportunities for, for jobs, for life satisfaction, because they will try other things. They will do more things. They will have a broader range of experiences if they're comfortable with maybe this will work and maybe it won't. And if it doesn't, that's fine. It's But they're willing to try it because they've strengthened those neural connections around failure. Yes. And, and, and you can have that uh, as a report. If you look at the growth of fixed minds, uh, the growth mindset, which is actually about... Uh, that failure is a part of a process. You try something, it works or it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, you try again in new ways. And that's really a way of learning and moving forward. But I think a big problem is that we as adults, we don't role model failure. We tell them to fail, but we don't do it. And I think in this conversation, we really need to talk to teens and tell them that I have a problem with this. I mean, I've had so many teens in, in the course that I've run about young brains telling me that, oh, now I understand this. I wish my mom did too, um, because she's so stressed or she has this problem with sleeping. And if we could talk about her problems and my problems, maybe I can help her and she can help me instead of we always helping them. I like that. And I know our kids do. They, they want to help. Again, they're passionate, they're compassionate, mm -hmm. and they see parents doing things. Also, when you said adults don't model failure, I feel like there are a couple of components. One is we have more experience in certain areas. I know my girls have been 
home now with COVID so much more and doing more around the house. And I've been trying to take that opportunity to build on some of their life skills, cooking being one of them, which also takes it off my plate. So <laughs> that's a, that's a bonus. And I watched them and they would get frustrated when they didn't know something and they're like, you know, all this. And I'm like, yes, because I made the mistake you just made. Now you made that mistake and you know it too. So I think some of it is they just haven't seen our time where we had all these little failures around learning how to take care of our home or cook our food or do our laundry, those just mundane everyday tasks. And when it comes to bigger things, I feel like shame stops us from sharing our failures. Mm -hmm. How do our teens, how do they feel about shame? How do they respond to that? And what can we do to help that situation? Um, it's since it's they're so sensitive to peers uh, and everything that's going on around them. I mean, it's both when it comes to rewards, but also their their thoughts are so much around themselves and their own actions. If you compare adults and teens' brains when they think about themselves and when they think about the consequences of their actions, there's more activity in a certain area of the brain in the teen brain. Uh, so everything that has to do with themselves or how others think about them um, takes up more space uh, in their thinking. So I think that it's like with everything else, it's talking about little things that opens up to bigger things. <laughs> so um, with shame, small things, if we have this daily conversation about little things that happen, then we can move that on to bigger things when they occur too. So as the brain is going through all of this growth, all of this development, it's going to need certain kind of care and some nurturing. What is it important that our teens' brains get? Like, how do we teach them or how do we support them in caring for themselves and their brain? What I've found is, and that has been very empowering, is for them to be able to learn more about what happens in the brain, giving them pieces of, of research in a way that they can digest, and then connect that very much with practical tools that they can use right away. And I've really broken them down in very small pieces so that I can present to them like a buffet and what I wanted to create when I wrote the book was uh, a resource that parents could read a chapter and teens can read a chapter and then they can discuss. So get out of the power struggle, they can discuss the book instead of someone telling uh, how things should go. So it's based, um, the book is based on something called a healthy mind platter, which includes mental activities that the brain needs every day. And it's not only for teens, the Healthy Mind Platter is as much for adults and children, but I've dedicated my work to, to research about the teen brain. So I'll have a link in the show notes to the book, but would you share the title of that? It's called Brain Tools for Teens. Um, and it's really about the small tools and the things that they can put in their own tool books and use with the problems that they have in that moment because what I've noticed when I work with teens is one day one person has a problem with sleeping and someone else has another problem and that 
it shifts. But once they understand the seven different areas that they can look into, they can stop up, they can think, oh, some, something's not working now. Let's check. Okay, my sleep is okay. My physical activity is okay. I don't take breaks. Oh, I have to work on that. So they can immediately get to the area they need to work on. Well, that was one of the things you you talked about that I appreciated in the book is you talked about the different times that our kids need, that they need sleep time, physical time, downtime, connecting time, play time. Why do they need all these different types of activities? Well, all of these are beneficial for brain function, creativity, and mental health. So these all seven activities, we need them on a daily basis for optimizing brain health and brain function. And that give us, uh, we create and sustain a good mental health by doing them every day. But it says time because you can't really say you need 10 minutes of this and one hour of this because we're all different and in different phases. But just for us to notice that we need time, we need them every day. Or do you, as you talk to teens, do you notice that there are some that some of these areas that they have more difficulty with in general than others, or is it truly just a kind of a mixed bag depending on the child? Um, I have, yeah, oh, I've noticed so many different, I worked with this for five years with student, different student groups. So I'd say sleep, um, is one of the main ones. And that's one thing that I didn't get to when, which is unique for the teen brain, is that actually the sleep pattern changes during the teenage years, which we probably notice because they like to sleep in and they stay late, up late at night. But that has to do with, there's a different, there's some, we have a hormone called melatonin and it's secreted at nighttime and for 12 hours until we wake up in the morning. But in the teen years, it kind of fluctuates. So it's not at a set time. It's more as an adult, we have more regular times. So for them, they it's more like they want to stay up later and they want to sleep in in the morning, most of them, not all of them, but most of them. Uh, so um, it, it is actually a biological change. And when they start to wake up earlier in the morning, it's actually a sign of getting into adulthood, <laughs> a biological sign. Interesting. So, so sleep is definitely one of them. And I've had so many uh, students with different problems with insomnia. Of course, screens is one of them, that they have screens in the bedroom and uh, they... There was one study that they looked at 18 to 24 year olds and 68% of them looked at their phones during night time between 11 and four in the morning. And this, the retina in the eye is more sensitive at night for the intense light. And that can, can also create more depressive symptoms if that goes on for a long time. So definitely trying to cut out the, the phone that's one thing that they work with uh, and they try to wean it off so they move it away from their bed a little bit longer <laughs> week by week we take it one step at a time to try to move it out of the bedroom but another thing is that um, they they feel like they should go to bed at 10 and they can't fall asleep so they lie in their bed for two hours and stare in the ceiling and get even more stressed so we talk about the little steps again like going to bed 20 minutes earlier and, and 
make that work as a habit and then move another 20 minutes and another 20 minutes. Well, it seems to like those two problems actually would go together. If, if they're lying in bed and they can't fall asleep after a while, they're going to grab the phone. And I, and I understand about the physiology of the light. And like you said, the retina, I also, for me, when I broke the habit of having the phone in my room, when I finally found an alarm clock that I could use instead, one of the things that I realized is when I would look at the phone late at night, or if I'd wake up early in the morning, same type of thing, grab the phone first. And there's just a shift that happens inside of us when we start connecting with the outside world. When we let go of that little cocoon of our home or more specifically our room, our bed. And so I feel like there would be, uh, I think that would interfere with sleep as well is just this connecting and thinking about getting the brain going to think about what's happening and what are other people doing and what's going on in the world. And especially if there's something that they end up up that upsets them, or they revisit something from the day that upset them, that that would make it harder for them to just calm and relax and fall asleep. Mm. So the importance of creating a really good uh, evening routine. Uh, one thing I think we don't talk about as much for, for teens as we do for adults at work is that creating a routine to finish work. Because for them with homework, they don't really know when they're finished or not and how long should I sit up and what what is okay. I talk to, to teens and say they are allowed to have a time that they can stop studying at night so that they have time to, to have their evening routine, to dim the lights in the evening, which helps them to for the melatonin to be secreted and for them to, to go to sleep. So a routine to finish work and a routine to so that they know when to start or what to start with the next time they, when they study the next day could be I, a way of finishing. I've never thought about that with kids and being an entrepreneur, being in charge of my own schedule, working from home. That was a huge change for me when I finally said, this is it. I create my to-do list each day. And I also set a time of day where I draw a line in the sand. I go look at the list. Yes, sometimes there's something urgent that still has to be finished, but otherwise you figure out when else it's going to happen in the week and you quit and you put it all away and you stop working. And I know for me that it was well, one, just a relief to actually know that was the end of my day. And like you said, you, you let go of that mentally then. You're like, okay, work is done or school is done. And I also remember being a student. And the, the one thing I really hated about being a student is that I never felt like I was done. There was just, there's always something, something else that needs to be done that I should be doing. And no one had ever talked to me about saying, no, you know, you make a list, you pick a time and you go, this is when you're done. This is how you know you are done with your day. And you don't always have to get ahead or do something else just because you, if you finish the list early, then you're done early. I also think it's important to, to talk about this in these times because when I went to school, now that's a long time ago, but then you had books and you didn't have the digital in the same way as you do now. And when I, if I forgot a book in school, well, I forgot a book in school. I had to live with that. But for them, 
they're constantly on. They can access the platforms and the times even in the middle of the night and do their homework or find out about, you know, new stuff that teachers have posted and it never ends. Um, and I think if, if we could teach teens this now, then a workforce when they grow up will be different because they can manage the situations. This is what we have to think about. We want to set them up to be able to handle a pandemic. So if they end up sitting at home working at university, wherever they are, they need to have the routines and the skills to manage themselves. And, and those, the young adults are working out there now in, in these, in the times uh, it's different. Yes, it definitely is. And I have one who is working from home and she's in her busy season. And so periodically she comes out of a room, grabs some food and disappears back in there again. And I just keep looking at that and trying to talk to her about it, how this is just not healthy mm. and she needs more time away from her room. And when she's in there, she also needs to not be working in her bed. I understand wanting to be comfortable, but those are things that impact us. And as we started talking about school and bringing up that idea, it, it made me wonder the, the neurological changes that are happening in our children's brains and their need to have these different types of times in their days. How do, how does, how do these changes in the teen brain and the, the needs of the teen brain, how does that impact their learning? Well, learning for them is actually easy <laughs> because their brains are very plastic uh, so it's easy for them to learn but of course they need to pay attention now multitasking <laughs> is something that people often bring up but that's detrimental to learning and it's said and I think most students can can uh, tell this is that it takes about four times longer if you multitask when you do a homework, you do your homework or assignment, then it would if you single task and did one thing at this at the time. So this is a problem. Um, another problem is that if you don't pay fully attention, it's harder to store long-term memories. So it would be more of a surface learning than deep learning what you're doing. And you really want to create deep learning and long-term long memories so you can build on them when you move on when you move forward. Well, what are some tips for them to pay better attention? Because I can hear it already. And I, again, thinking back to my school days, it's like, well, I was listening. I was paying attention. It didn't just sink in. What um, can we help? How can we help them? Or what can we suggest that they do? Besides not multitasking, which I appreciate that one. I, I talk to my clients about that. It's like, you're not you're not actually multitasking. You're switching back and forth. Your brain is switching back and forth from one task to another. It cannot process both things at the same time if, if they're both processing type of tasks. Yes, you can walk and do something else, but you can't study and you can't be um, on a phone call talking to me and writing an email at the same time. Your brain's going to flip back and forth. And especially there's something called the attentional blink. So every time you switch, you miss a little bit of information, a piece of information. Uh, this is great. I tell students this, I tell teachers this, <laughs> because if you work in a team and you have someone there and they say, oh, it's fine, I'm just going to write this email, I'll listen to what you say, and then you discuss a project and you talk for a long time and you decide, and the person you know, takes down their, their computer and they say, and then they ask a question that you just discussed. And 
they miss that information because of the switching back and forth. So um, this is something I talk to students too, that don't use computers, put all the screens away. It's better to have shorter bouts of working and then short uh, breaks where you can access your tech and then come back and work together again. Uh, so yeah, that's multitasking definitely, but how can we help them? Well, I would talk to them um, about grading the importance of the assignment that they're doing or the homework. So how complex is that for them? And then maybe they'll tell you that physics is very complex or it could be grammar for someone that it's different. Um, and then they can try multitasking um, for one homework and they try without for one. It's really getting them to experiment and reflect and discuss how did that work so that they can find out that, okay, this kind of work I can do while talking to a, a friend about it at the same time, or this I really need to pay attention and, you know, turn everything off when I work with it. So telling them is not enough. It's really trying. Experiencing it. That was yes. what the, the word that went through my mind when you're talking about that. I'm like, of course, none of us really accept something fully typically until we experience it. Hmm. So I think letting them have that experience and see one, how much longer it takes to do homework. I think that would be a huge motivator, get this done faster and easier <laughs> then I can go do whatever I want. That for me is motivating. I know. And I think it would be definitely for our teens. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, they can practice if they have several things that they have to do, which one is the most complex? Okay, do that first and do it single tasking. Give me the phone and do just do that. Come back and you can do whatever you want. They learn little by little, at least my students, they come back and their mantra is single tasking. When they realize that they get so much more time off to actually watch the series on Netflix that they're trying to watch at the same time as they're chatting and doing everything else. Um, so I try not to tell them what to do, but like go home and try and see the difference. I love that. And again, just thinking about the adults I work with, I, it's difficult for them to accept that multitasking doesn't help them get more done. And I said, I got it. And I told them the same thing. I'm like, time yourself, see how long it takes you when you multitask and when you single task. And inevitably, if they do it, they have that realization. And I was the same way. I, I would multitask and I timed myself and saw how much faster I would get things done and how much more easily. Because every time you leave a task and come back in, you have to back up a little bit to think about where was I and what was I doing and where was I at? So it's just, it's also easier in addition to saving time. Yeah, I just have a... That's one thing that you can think about as an adult, and that's if you're navigating, you're driving a car and you have the, the GPS on and you have a friend and you have music and you get closer and closer in a new city center and you, you hear the GPS is talking to you, doing things. And the more complex it gets, the more you turn off the music, you ask your friend to be quiet and you try to just focus on what they're saying. And that's really what it's all about. It's different levels that you can manage but, but the more complex it gets, the more you need to focus. I never realized, but yes, I do that. I think most of us do. <laughs> yeah. 
or I'll be in the car and my child will be talking and whatnot. And I'll not necessarily tell them, but I'll be focusing and focusing in. Then I'll have to come back and go, I didn't hear anything you said. I was just thinking about where I was driving. You're going to have to repeat all of that. And I just hadn't realized that that was what was happening. So another great example and one that we can share with our, our teens because, well, not all of them, but many of them, <laughs> depending on their age, have had that experience of driving and hopefully are focusing very intently on what they're doing while they're driving. Yeah, hopefully, yes. I appreciate these insights and, and just, like I said, the positive view of what's happening. I think the misunderstanding leads to frustration for parents, and then that leads to negative views of our teens when what we really have going on is incredible and beautiful and the understanding makes it so much easier. And you detail all of that so well in your book. And I, I love the way you, you help us through specific issues. Like you're having this problem. All right, read this part, move on from here. So that's really wonderful. Where can people find you online, Marlin? They can find me at the website, um, braintoolsforteens.com or on Instagram where I share research and, and tips and tricks uh, too. Great. And we will have a link to your website in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing these insights with us. Thank you for having me. It's been great. And Mighty Parents, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. And if you're here, if you're listening, remember you are a Mighty Parent. You got this. And I will see you next week. 